one of my earliest memories is mum handing me the Women's Weekly birthday cake book. You remember it. It had that cover with a train made out of cake and the smoke coming out of the train was made of popcorn. This birthday was a big one. I was five years old and obsessed with Minnie Mouse. My whole bedroom was pink. I even had a Minnie Mouse doona. Mum told me I could pick any cake I wanted for my birthday next week. Each cake was more amazing than the one before it. There isn't a child who hasn't turned the pages of it for their fourth birthday and said, Mummy, can I have that one, you know, and I want the train or I want the truck or that wonderful doll. I turned and turned the pages. I started to think I wasn't going to find my cake. And finally, on page 11, it happened. The Minnie Mouse cake of my dreams. She had a big pink ribbon in her hair, a wafer for a tongue, and a pink lolly for a nose. It looked just like the cartoon. That birthday was magical. My mum stayed up all night making Minnie Mouse perfect. Does everyone want a piece of cake? That's my mum. She's still the birthday cake queen. And now that I'm becoming a mum, yep, I'm making this podcast about cake while I'm super pregnant. I want to be a cake wizard too, because cakes hold so many memories. First birthdays, baby blessings, weddings, even funerals, like literally all of the most important celebrations in life. I'm Caitlin Sorry, and this is Cake the Podcast, the State Library of Queensland. In this episode, we're looking at how climate changed how we cook, because in Queensland, it gets hot. And that sweaty struggle may have produced one of Australia's most prized possessions. You are about to witness the birth of a lamington. Those delicious little squares of chocolate-soaked sponge rolled in coconut. The lamington. It sparked intense rivalry over the years. Ipswich, Toowoomba and now New Zealand have all claimed credit for creating the lamington. But for all the competition, that sweet treat comes with a mystery. Who invented it first? Such a classic library in here. So quiet. It is. It's very quiet here and I really appreciate it because I feel like there's so many minds at work. This is Jacinta Sutton. She works with the collections team for State Library of Queensland. And we've come here because they have a whole treasure trove of archives, some of which are so old you have to go into a special room just to view them. So we're outside the white glove room, Mm -hmm. which is very exciting. What do we have to do before we come in here? Okay, so before you enter the John Oxley Library and the best thing to do is wash your hands because the oils on your fingers can affect the paper and we want to keep them in as best condition as possible. Let's not break the books. Yeah. The State Library is in charge of preserving Queensland's cultural heritage and they've been collecting our diaries, books and private papers for over 100 years. If I'm going to figure out who invented the Lamington, I should probably start here. And luckily for us, Jacinta has already been rummaging through the archives to see what she can find. There's so much competition and rivalry of the uh, possible and potential places of origin. Places like Toowoomba and Ipswich, Hungary and even New Zealand. I think the mystery of the origin is part of its legacy and its story. But one of the strongest reasons to think the Lamington started in Queensland is that we used to have a governor by the name of Lord Lamington. It was around when recipes first started appearing in print at the turn of the century. 
I did hear a rumour it was named a lamington because Lord Lamington had dandruff. <laughs> so the little bits of coconut, which is repulsive for a, a baked good. Or the other one was that there was a hat that he wore that had these white flecks on it. Okay, both of those theories are gross. But the top running story is this one that one day, Lord Lamington's chef was unprepared for visitors and had to get creative in the kitchen, aka the stale sponge theory. There's some way to that, you know? What are we going to do with this sponge that can't be a sponge cake anymore? So, could this be true? Could this cube of deliciousness have started as a chef's attempt to hide some stale sponge cake in chocolate and coconut? I've seen Downton Abbey. I know it's not always according to plan. While these theories are interesting, I need answers. I've got here with me the diary of Lady Lamington. Can we talk about the fact that the title says Lord Lamington, Governor of Queensland, and in smaller letters it says Diary Written by Lady Lamington. Yeah. Patriarchy aside, we have a copy of Lady Lamington's actual diary. It's got to be something in here, right? She mentions a dinner that they went to. I remember one night to tease his staff, Lord Beauchamp... Served dinner from the wrong end with coffee and cigarettes and ending with soup. And some of the staff really did mind, which made it quite amusing. I think uh, there could have been a few things there that didn't go to plan, and that's how we ended up with the Lamington. While that might make for a great Downton Abbey episode, it doesn't solve our mystery. So does Lady Lamington make any mention of the Lamington? Okay, so I went through all, you know, 200 and so pages. There isn't a mention of the Lamington, the baked good. So the Lady Lamington diary was a dead end. But what if I think about the error? Maybe there's a clue there. Maybe I need to travel back in time over a hundred years ago. Picture it. It's the middle of summer in Queensland. The air feels almost solid with humidity. Air conditioning and refrigerators haven't been invented yet. It's the kind of day where you wake up in a pool of your own sweat. And if you're trying to ice a fresh cake, good luck. It'll melt right off the base. For the colonists coming to Australia who were used to the polite climate of England, it was a huge culture shock, and women often had to figure it out on their own. Well, if you were living on a station and you didn't have access to shops, you only got your supplies, you know, came by horse and dray, I don't know, once a month, if that, you had to be innovative. This is Alison Alexander, food consultant, Queensland food fellow, and all-round foodie. We're all very fussy in the food world now. We're all terribly opinionated and I think are quite demanding. She wasn't kidding. Here's what happened when I made the mistake of describing cake as rich. Just don't say the word rich. People eat a piece of cake and then say, oh, it's very rich. Well, what did they expect? <laughs> they expect it to be very bland. You're eating chocolate, for heaven's sake. Okay, let's <laughs> say rich then. So you've got all the hottest tips on where to find the best cake. Well, we're sitting in one of them for a start. (laughs) Tell us about where we are. We're in a restaurant called Wild Canary. This place was a nursery and is still a wonderful nursery. Their head chef, Glenn Barrett, loves using flowers to decorate his cakes. And you'll see when you look in the cake window, you know, you've... 
are assailed by these really colourful, picturesque creations as such. The cake cabinet is stacked with cakes covered in flowers, pansies, violets and strawberries adorning fruit crumbles, tarts and the mother of all cakes. It's a monster thing on the bottom, isn't it? Wow. That is. The chocolate pear and pistachio cake. Yes, please. It should be on a pedestal. You know, it's got that look to it. Yeah. It's like quite stacked. I might not be able to finish it. That's all right. You can have it in a doggy bag. Alison is one of those people in the food world who doesn't just keep up with the latest trends. She also digs back into our culinary history to understand where we've come from. Alison was handed down a recipe from her great aunt, and it gave her some insight into what it was like baking in Queensland a hundred years ago. My great aunt was married in 1920. She'd grown up in Brisbane in a well-to-do household, had no idea to cooking, but was given this recipe after she married and left to go near Claremont. So, you know, no towns nearby, and the recipe was for a Bushman's brownie. And the idea of it, I think, was that it would keep quite well, and it does. It's a very simple slice, we would call it now. A little bit dry, but the sort of thing that you'd put in a tin and keep for a few days, you know, as, as you needed it. Bushman's brownie. Doesn't sound super appetising. At least not compared to what we've just ordered. The cake has arrived. Oh, my gosh. Okay, your crumble looks amazing. It's covered in flowers. It oh, and is. so is mine. Covered in flowers is very much the signature of here. And mine's got a, a selection of fruits through it, which is gorgeous. And then topped with the most luscious crumble and a bit of icing sugar, which is truly delicious looking. Oh, that's really good. I can see why cake's a thing here. Okay, back to cooking 100 years ago and Alison's great aunt's Bushman's brownie. What goes into the brownie was hugely dependent on your circumstances. You might have had some chooks and you might have had some eggs if the foxes hadn't got them or... You know, they hadn't died in the heat. So your egg supply would have been what you had, not what the shops supplied to you, because, you know, generally they're not going to keep all that long. And basic things we take for granted weren't on tap, but we may do. What would you use if you'd run out of butter? You would have had dripping. And that original recipe for that slice did have dripping. And at the bottom of it, my great-aunt's cousin, who supplied her with the recipe, had a lovely little note at the bottom that said, instead of dripping, if you have butter, all the better. And I love that little line because, it, of course, it's much better flavour, but so many things were made with dripping because that's what they did have, you know, the fat from the meat they were cooking. I can't imagine it tastes very good in cake, but I guess you cover it up with sugar. Well, if you strain it so you take all the meaty bits out of it, you're left with a fat. And it's just that we're so used to butter now. But dripping was used extensively. If you ran out of something, you had to make it work, where we never have to do that now because we just go down to the shops as such. Without refrigeration, there was also the heat to deal with. Some cakes you make and you just have to eat them that day because they're not going to be good the next day, let alone further which is why Lamingtons did well in Queensland. The icing kept the sponge moist and the coconut kept the chocolate from melting off. But it wasn't just the cakes that were sweating. Really, I think the women drew the short straw there. 
because it was hard work. They had open fires. They were dressed to the nines with layers and layers and layers of things. And they wouldn't have had, particularly if they were in the country, they wouldn't have had help on hand. Doesn't sound like a whole lot of fun. There's a picture of my great-great-grandmother from this time in front of a bark hut. She's got a high-collar dress on, long sleeves, the skirts fall to her ankles, she's got a baby on one arm, and she looks miserable in the heat. But while many people in the bush were making do in remote locations, sweating it out in front of open fires, not everyone in the colonies cared to be practical. What's interesting about this time is that there are a lot of women who didn't really want to get their hands dirty. In the Victorian era, a real lady aspired to be more of an ornament. I think they realised pretty quickly that the climate, the landscape, the availability of supplies and produce and ingredients was very different to, say, a place like England. I'm rifling through papers again with Jacinta Sutton from the State Library of Queensland. So we've got this document that you've printed out for me. A Centenary History of Home Economics, Education in Queensland, 1881 to 1981. It's interesting because reading this document, I kind of thought that if you were turning up in Queensland, you might have come from England, you might have come from other places, but you turned up here and you kind of like, I've got to be practical. Mm. But actually there was a whole group of women and girls who didn't want to be practical. Yeah, they brought over with them kind of these cultural ideals for women, you know, needlepoint and embroidery and social skills and and these sorts of things. But the idea of cooking or taking care of a home or having the nouse to kind of like prepare meals when you lived in isolated areas was not on the agenda at all. So basically there was no home ec before 1881 in Queensland? No, there wasn't. There's a great quote from the Queenslander, which was a weekly newspaper. It says... Whither our young females drifting? Many of their number appear to avoid everything really useful to society and take up with that which is superficial, useless or mischievous. Their thoughts appear to run upon outer dress, pernicious reading, tattle, waste of time and idleness, but examine into their knowledge of domestic duty and they're immediately lost. All that is homely and of real utility is shunned as vulgar and considered unladylike. Well, I mean, look, apart from that word unladylike at the end there, I mean, you could be speaking about Gen Z or Gen Alpha, couldn't you? It feels like old people talking about TikTokers. Exactly. And that was the editor of the Queenslander in 1871. They wanted to be a proper Victorian lady, but there wasn't anyone who was going to be their servant. So they were kind of sitting around not doing much, but it wasn't going to work out for them very well. Exactly. And then in comes the education department saying we need to prescribe a curriculum here. And it took a woman to be able to do that. And the woman who emerged as the leader of the home economics movement in Queensland was a lady by the name of Amy Shower, who wrote what many people consider to be the Bible of Australian cookery. So this here is the Shower Australian Cookery Book. 2,000 recipes in one book is massive. No photos, just all text. All killer, no filler. All killer, no filler, that's it. And in terms of those 2,000 recipes, quite a lot of them are cakes. The Education Department turned to Amy Shower to lead the charge, to teach Queensland women and girls to step up their game as cooks. She was a huge influence on the education sector and she devoted her whole life to the betterment of education around cooking. So Amy taught cookery at the Brisbane Central Technical College from 1895 until the early 1920s, but she was teaching and publishing cookbooks well beyond then. Amy Shaw was a huge influence. 
You remember our resident foodie, Alison Alexander, who we shared a cake with earlier. She has inside info on Amy Shower. She was a remarkable woman. And I've met people who were taught by her and, and I gather she was quite strict, which was the way of things in those days. But, you know, they just thought the world of her as a cookery teacher. Amy Shower was so prolific, despite never studying with her personally, Alison has learnt a lot from her. Her book on Australian cookery, you know... <laughs> Some of the most basic things I learnt to make from that book, when you've got a whole lot of mixture of things left over in the fridge, what do you do with them? You make fritters, don't you? Well, it was Amy who taught me how to make fritters, you know. Just really basic things. But she's got a wonderful range of cakes in there. And, and when you look at how to make a sponge cake, she really did have a great influence. Sponge cake. That's inside a lamington. Interesting. Amy Shaw was a household name that changed the face of home economics in Queensland, and everyone had her recipe books. But who she was as a person is something Jacinta Sutton has been struggling to figure out. It's so difficult to find information on her. Like, it's almost as if she was secretive. She never married. She never had children. I can find a lot of things that she published officially, but in terms of her diaries or manuscripts, which we generally tend to hold a lot of those in the collection of Queenslanders, Really, Amy's is a silence there. She was a, one of Australia's finest women and devoted her life to cookery and the education of the domestic sciences. It's like very um, unsatisfying, right? Yeah. I'm praying that one day, you know, someone will walk into the library with a fabulous collection of her diaries and photos and letters and want to donate them to us and then we will be able to unravel the story of her and begin a new journey. That would be great. Okay, another dead end. As much as I'd love to help Jacinta solve the enigma that is Amy Shower, I have my own Lamington mystery to unravel. And there's only one place left to look, Toowoomba. They're one of the places that claim to have invented it and once held the record for the world's largest Lamington before being outdone by New Zealand. But we're headed there for a different reason. We have a date with the authority on Lamingtons. One thing you should never do is ask an historian to check something because the first thing they do is explode all the myths. This is Emeritus Professor of History Morris French, and he literally wrote the book on it, titled The Lamington Enigma, A Survey of the Evidence. About 10 years ago, I was asked by a local journalist to look into this with a view to simply writing a sort of article for the weekend paper. And I'm afraid what was supposed to be a 500-word article turned into a medium-sized book on the subject. We're meeting Morris at the Toowoomba Historical Society, where he's vice president. It's a small, nondescript building on the edge of the Botanic Gardens. This is where all the history nerds hang out. I don't know whether they're nerds so much, actually. I'm probably a retired nerd. Well, this retired nerd went well and truly down the Lamington wormhole. It was invented before the First World War, probably around 1900, and it had some popularity in regional news ladies' columns and recipes as, as a standard sort of afternoon tea fair or, or something to take to dance parties at night. The sort of thing you can whip up and take with you very easily. The Lamington became popular at afternoon teas and especially at bush dance parties. Once cooled, it was very transportable. Then in, in, in the Second World War, it lost popularity because of rationing. But like the Allies, the Lamington would live to fight another day. It began to gain popularity in the 1950s when the Women's Weekly began to push the Lamington recipe. 
And this is when the lamington craze really came into its own. And it, it became popular in the 50s and 60s as a fundraising tool for schools and girl guides and boy scouts and lamington drives. In fact, many mothers feared the lamington drive for the school because they had to make a dozen lamingtons and, <laughs> and so on. Even, even um, we now have sausage sizzles on election day. They used to have lamington sales on election day as a sort of a fundraising. Bring back the lamington. But even with democracy lamingtons on election day, no one really questioned who created them until the 1980s bicentennial when the lamington was declared a national icon. And there was a sort of a, a half-baked search for which man created the lamington. It was always a man who created the lamington, which is probably not the case. The hunt was on, and of course our mate Lord Lamington was at the centre of many of the stories. He's reported as saying, I don't like those, those woolly, puffy biscuits. Now, that is a fanciful statement because the word puffy doesn't enter the English lexicon until the 1960s. So he could never have used the word puffy. There's another tradition that Lord Lamington was so detested that nobody would ever name a cake after him. <laughs> he was fairly popular as a governor. Some of the stories are just taking the piss. A few years ago, some researchers at the University of Auckland had found an old painting of a, of a, of a dining room. And the painting was dated in the 1880s and clearly on the table in the dining room was a lamington. And they said, oh, the lamington was invented in New Zealand in, in the 1880s. Unfortunately, that story was published on the 1st of April. It was an April, a giant April fool's joke, so giving the sort of finger to Australian <laughs> traditions. <laughs> But the most common story is this one. The typical story is that Lord Lamington, the governor of Queensland at the time, he had some unexpected guests one day and the kitchen didn't have food to serve them. So the, the chef took a stale cake, dumped it into melted chocolate and covered it with desiccated coconut and served it up. You remember the stale sponge theory Jacinta told us about. That in itself is fanciful because you can't serve Lamington's as soon as you make them. You usually have to leave them a day before you can actually serve them. Rule that story out. Well, there's a similar story that a French chef at Government House who was confronted with the same problem, who did the same thing. A French chef? What was a French chef doing in the kitchens of Lord Lamington? French chefs were very popular because of the desserts especially, and petite fours are classic French sort of appetisers. So the lamington is sometimes equated with a petite four. It was a dainty. It was a dainty thing so that you could stand up, have it on a small plate and, and easily manage. Make conversation and be socially appropriate. Yes. So following the trends of the time, Lord and Lady Lamington actually had a chef by the name of Armand Gallant. So was he the inventor of the lamington? He didn't actually start work at Government House until after the first lamington recipe appeared. So he may have made lamingtons himself, but I don't think he was responsible for them. OK, strike the French chef. Who else is on our suspect list? Well, there's someone else that doesn't get talked about very often when it comes to the origin of the lamington. You've heard of her already, which is kind of hard to pin down. The best answer I can give is that the lamington was probably created in the kitchens of the Brisbane Technical College in the cooking class there, run by a well-experienced lecturer, Amy Shower. Amy Shower, the mysterious lady who led the home economics movement in Queensland. Lady Lamington was the patron of the cooking class there, and she herself actually did a cooking course. So she had a close association with the, the, the cooking class at Brisbane Technical College. 
So how do we know that Amy Shower was the one who invented the lamington? There is an oral tradition that comes through Lloyd Rees, who's a, a prominent figure in Australian culture, that his sister attended those cooking classes and came home and one day with a plate of lamington said they'd just been made in the cooking class. We do know that Amy Rees was enrolled in that class and it's quite likely that the final cooking class, if not the formal exam, is where the lamington was actually created. So from all of this research... You think the most likely candidate is Amy Shower's cooking kitchen? I think it's most likely that, whether it was Amy Shower or a student, said, we'll, we'll never know. Unfortunately for Jacinta, the mystery of Amy Shower adds another page to its book. But we think we know where the Lamington was created and who it was named after. It was named either by the students or by Amy Shower as the Lamington Cake in honour not of Lord Lamington, but Lady Lamington. It turns out Australia's greatest cake had little to do with lords and a lot to do with ladies. And Morris tells us that the earliest published version of the recipe in the December 1900 edition of Queensland Country Life was found a year after he published his book. That original one in Queensland Country Life must be pretty hard to track down because it wasn't in your original book. Unfortunately, newspapers were just being digitised when I was doing this book and my research was actually based on reading the actual newspapers themselves. And it's quite clear that not being able to do a keyword search, I actually missed this one and it only pops up once. It's fairly interesting that the first recipe is actually a Queensland-based recipe, which again sort of lends a little bit more credence that it was a Queensland creation, invention sort of thing. I mean, at this point, I don't care who created it, who was named that. I just care that it, it started here. That's honorary Queenslander and producer Frank Lopez. Queensland is 99.99% Queensland. I'll take it. <laughs> well, you heard it straight from the man who wrote the book on Lamingtons. 99.99% is going to have to be good enough. Now, all that's left to do is to make a Lamington. At the end of each episode, we'll make a cake inspired by the stories we've learned. And today, we are, of course, making the very first published Lamington recipe. Okay, so I've got Open Trove, which if you ever want to read an old newspaper, this is where you can find everything. And I've got the original Lamington recipe up from the December issue 1900 of Queensland Country Life. Back in the day, they would have just done all that by hand. And the chocolate sauce. Just get a coconut. All right, Frankie, you want to come and try these lamingtons? Ma'am, that's like, that's a lamington. Good. Mm. If you would like to make the original lamington recipe, it is posted on State Library of Queensland's website and also in today's show notes. In episode two, we find out where did our obsession with pineapples and cake come from? It was spun as, oh, we live in this climate with this fantastic fruit and this produce. Let's get into it. Like any good cake, Cake the Podcast is best shared. Leave a review and subscribe to show the love. Cake the Podcast is an F&K production made for State Library of Queensland.